Hello, welcome to Asbury. My name is Pastor Mike. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as interviews and special devotionals. We hope these messages inspire and support you as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions or want to have further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking out our website at asburymaitland.org. I know Richie talked a bit this morning about other languages. I've always been impressed by people who speak multiple languages. How many of you know another language besides English? Okay, a few of you do. Uh, I know of people who, in addition to speaking English, they speak German, French, Korean, Japanese, Spanish, uh, some language like that. Well, since becoming parents three years ago, my wife Amanda and I have come to master another language. And the language that we have come to master is toddler. We speak proficient fluent toddlers. Some of you are laughing because maybe you've spoken toddler in the past. Now granted, my toddler isn't nearly as good as Amanda's. Her toddler is stellar, excellent, but mine is still pretty good. So often what will happen is Hannah Noah will say something to somebody, and by the way, I know I've never brought up Hannah Noah before, so there are twins who are three, but so often what will happen is Hannah Noah will say something to somebody, and the person will look at us and say, I'm sorry, what did they say? And we'll translate, well, this is what they were saying. And of course, the reason that we have gotten so good at speaking toddler is not because we've gone to school and studied the language. I don't think schools offer a course in toddler just yet. Uh, there's not a Rosetta Stone out there for toddler either. Instead, the reason we have gotten so good at speaking toddler is because of how intimate we are with our twins. Nobody on this planet knows Hannah and Noah better than we do. And obviously, the intimacy that we have with Hannah and Noah is nothing compared to the intimacy that God has with us as human beings. Uh, David writes in Psalm 139, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 139 is my absolute favorite psalm in the Old Testament. It is so powerful. Uh, David writes in that psalm that all of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God, that God has numbered their hairs on our head, which I think for God is easy to do when it comes to me. Uh, maybe for others who have more hair, it's more difficult. I don't know. But God has numbered the hairs on our head. God is fully acquainted with all of our ways. God knows us inside and out. And yet, even as familiar as God is with us, God still wants to develop a relationship with us. And God wants us to develop a relationship with him. So out of this desire for a relationship, God gifts us with prayer. Prayer is the currency of this relationship. Prayer is the channel that facilitates our relationship with God. Um, over the past five weeks, uh, we've been engaged in the message series here at Asbury called Deep to Deep, Diving into the Mystery of Prayer. Deep to Deep, Diving into the Mystery of Prayer. Um, so far in this series, just to give a quick recap, so far in this series, we have talked about the two perspectives that prayer gives us. How prayer gives us a view from above, and what's the second view? A view from beside. Number, where, number one, prayer reminds us how awesome God is, how mighty God is, how sovereign God is. That's that view from above. And that this mighty, sovereign, awesome God wants to be beside us, wants to be near us, wants to be close to us, wants to walk with us and journey with us, even as God walked and journeyed with Adam and Eve the first people in the Garden of Eden. We've talked about what effect, if any, prayer has on situations. Does prayer actually change things? Does prayer alter things? We've talked about those seasons in our prayer lives where God seems silent. What brings about these seasons? What causes these seasons? And how do we survive them with our faith intact? And we've talked about the difficulty of unanswered prayer, how painful unanswered prayer can be, 
and how do we faithfully understand this dilemma? Well, today, as we wrap up this series uh, and bring these conversations to a close, we're going to look more carefully today at the practice of prayer itself, the practice of prayer itself. And specifically, we're going to see how this practice influences us in three ways. Number one, how prayer influences us personally. Number two, how prayer influences our connection to others. And then number three, how prayer influences our connection to God. So how prayer influences us personally, how it influences our connection to others, and then number three, how it influences our connection to God. Let's start with this first part, how prayer influences us personally. So how exactly does prayer personally influence us? Well, prayer at its core is being with God. It's keeping company with God. And folks, we tend to be influenced by those with whom we keep company, right? For example, since I've been in my 30s, I have become painfully aware of the fact that I am more like my father, Doug Jones, than I ever realized. And this is pretty hard for me to say this morning. Uh, my dad has a pretty weird sense of humor. If you ever get to know my dad, you'll find that to be true. I also have a weird sense of humor. If you have come to know me a bit better, uh, you have found that to be true as well. The same bizarre things that make my dad laugh also make me laugh. Uh, also along that line, the same things that bug my dad and annoy my dad also tend to bug me and annoy me. Uh, my dad, when he visits us from Fort Lauderdale, he'll make these big, funny faces around Hannah and Noah, and sometimes I'll make these same big, funny faces around Hannah and Noah without realizing it, and you know who points it out to me? Amanda does. She'll say, you know, your dad makes those same faces when he's around the twins. Uh, my dad has some quirks. I also have some of these same quirks. I am more like my father than I've ever realized. Now, to be clear, I did not intentionally set out to become like my dad. In fact, if I'm being honest, I tried really hard not to be like him, just like most kids try hard not to be like their parents. Amen? Just like I'm sure one day Hannah and Noah, they're going to try really hard not to be like me, and I can't blame them for that. But I spent the first 18 years of life with my father. My most formative years were spent under his care, so after a while, his characteristics rubbed off on me. Does anybody know a good therapist I might talk to this morning? But if being around our earthly parents influences us so much, imagine how much more being around God, our Heavenly Father, influences us. And that's basically what happens in prayer. Prayer brings us into the presence of God. Prayer ushers us into the presence of God. Prayer delivers us into the presence of God. And in God's presence, we start to change. We start to transform. We become more like the one to whom we're praying. Check out how Jesus puts it. And his Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5, goes all the way to Matthew 7. This is what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, Jesus is telling us, you are to become like God. But Jesus also knew that becoming like God for us doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen right away. It's a journey that we're on. As God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God begins to mold us, God begins to shape us, God begins to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Prayer is the vehicle of that journey. Prayer takes us from where we are to where God wants us to be. The more we pray, the more we spend time in the presence of God, the more like God we become over time. I love this image. We have it up here on the screen. In some ways, God uses prayer like an artist uses a chisel. God chisels away at the bad stuff, the greed, the bitterness, the resentment, the jealousy that all of us struggle with. God chisels away at these things, 
God smooths out the hard edges, and God refines what's good. Uh, one of my favorite letters from the Apostle Paul is Philippians. We actually did a congregation-wide Bible study on Philippians earlier this year. It was the first Bible study that I led um, here at Asbury. Paul wrote almost half the New Testament, but Philippians is one of my favorite letters of his. And what's interesting about Philippians is Philippians is known by scholars as Paul's joy letter. Uh, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice about 17 times in Philippians, uh, which is fascinating given the circumstances under which Paul wrote Philippians because the circumstances were anything but joyful on the surface. They were anything but uplifting. Do you remember what was going on with Paul when he wrote Philippians? Do you know where he was? He was in jail. Scholars believe he was probably in Rome where he was awaiting the pronouncement of his faith. He had been incarcerated for at least the last four years for no other reason other than his commitment to Jesus and his passion for the gospel. If anybody had reason to give up hope, the apostle Paul did. Yet Paul's disposition when he wrote Philippians was one of joy and exuberance. And it's not that Paul was naive. It's not that Paul was ignorant to the reality of what he was going through. Instead, Paul had resigned himself to God in prayer, and through prayer, God had removed any sense of worry, any sense of fear, any sense of concern or dread about the future, and replaced these feelings with peace. Peace not dependent on circumstances, peace not found anywhere in this world. Paul speaks about this peace toward the end of his letter. This is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And by the way, as an aside, uh, this isn't in my notes. When I was doing some research online, I found out that for people who have the Bible on Amazon Kindle, this is the most underlined passage uh, on Amazon Kindle when it comes to the Bible. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This peace that the Apostle Paul came to experience, that peace came to him through prayer. And Paul invites us, Paul encourages us to experience the same kind of peace for ourselves by going to God in prayer. As the old hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God. Finish the line. In prayer. So through prayer, God molds us, God shapes us, God helps us become the people that God so desperately wants us to be. But prayer also personally influences us in another way. Prayer stirs us to action. Prayer stirs us to action. Some people criticize prayer as being a passive act, but so often prayer leads to action, not just action on God's part. Prayer leads to action on our part too. Here I'm reminded of the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Uh, Esther is actually one of two books in the Bible named after women. You know what the other book in the Bible named after a woman is? Ruth. And we're actually going to do a sermon series on Ruth, uh, not next week, but the week after. We're going to begin a four-week series on Ruth. Uh, but Esther is the other book in the Bible named after a woman. I love the story of Esther. As the, as the story opens up, Esther gets married to this guy. His name is King Xerxes. And Xerxes is this hot-headed king. He's unpredictable. And Esther, by the way, is a Jewish woman. She's living in the Persian Empire. Uh, this was about maybe 500 years or so before Jesus, the Persian Empire was this massive empire. It was a powerhouse in the ancient world. Well, Xerxes had this right-hand man. His name was Haman. Haman, he's the villain in the story. He hated the Jewish people. 
could not stand the Jewish people. He wanted nothing more than to see the Jewish people disappear from the Persian Empire. So he sneaked in a decree, basically authorizing the annihilation of the Jewish people from Persia. And Xerxes, without thinking about it, he just signed off on this decree, not knowing that the woman he had just married, Esther, was Jewish herself. And so Esther, at the encouragement of her cousin Mordecai, the guy who had raised her and mentored her, she decided to use her influence to go to the king to get the king to reverse the decree. Now, she didn't know how he was going to respond. This was an unpredictable guy. He was hot-headed. For all she knew, he could very well kill her on the spot. How dare she come into his presence and speak to him this way? But before Esther took this bold action, you know what she did? She prayed. This is what it says in Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. And of course, Mordecai was the guy who had raised her, mentored her, her cousin. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king if I must die. I must die. Fasting back then was always joined with prayer. In other words, Esther grounded what she did in prayer. She bade what she did in prayer. Now, to be fair, Esther already knew what she was going to do even before she prayed. She knew that she was eventually going to go speak to the king. In other cases, though, prayer can reveal the kind of action that God wants us to take. Uh, John Henry Newman, this guy whom you see up here on the screen, how many of you have ever heard of John Henry Newman before? If you grew up Catholic, maybe you have. Actually, if you go to almost any Catholic church today, you'll find a Sunday school class called the Newman class. Uh, that class was named after John Henry Newman. He was a cardinal back in the 1800s, incredibly influential in the Catholic church. Well, the story goes that when he was serving as a cardinal, he received this letter from a priest over in England. He was serving this poor village. And this epidemic of cholera had broken out uh, decimating the village. People were dying left and right. Uh, this priest had so many funerals to do. He was ministering to the dying. He was overwhelmed. He couldn't keep up with all the demands of ministry. And so he wrote to Cardinal Newman, asking Cardinal Newman if he would send another priest to that small village to help him out. Well, Cardinal Newman was so moved by his letter that he spent the next hour in prayer praying about who to send. And then his secretary came in the office and she said, Cardinal Newman, what should we do about that man's letter? What priest should we send to that village? And Cardinal Newman said, people are suffering and dying. I can't send a priest to do that work. I must go myself. Through prayer, John Henry Newman determined that he was the person, not somebody else, but he was the person God wanted to send to help out that priest. Prayer stirs us to action. And so just a quick recap, prayer personally influences us by making us more like God, as we said, and by stirring us to action but prayer doesn't only influence us personally. Prayer also influences, number two, our connection to others. Our connection to others. One of God's greatest desires for us as human beings is unity. I think about what the psalmist writes in Psalm 133, how good and pleasing it is when kindred live in unity. And folks, there are fewer places where we are more united than when we're praying for each other. Uh, back in January, we started this ministry here at Asbury on our Facebook page called Morning Prayer. And I know that some of you have been a part of Morning Prayer. Uh, every Monday through Friday at 8.30 a.m., uh, Pastor Mike or myself, uh, we lead you in a time of live prayer, and people submit prayer requests in the comment section on Facebook, and we 
prayer over those requests, there are fewer places where we are more united than when we're praying for each other. And there's actually a name for this kind of prayer that we're talking about. We call it intercessory prayer. Can you say this with me? Intercessory prayer. Essentially what we're doing is we're interceding before God on somebody else's behalf. I'm interceding before God on Barbara's behalf, on Mike's behalf, on somebody else's behalf. But there's a misunderstanding that so many of us carry about intercessory prayer. We tend to see intercessory prayer as somehow bringing new information to God, making God aware of something that God's not aware of, or convincing God to do something that God might not do. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because the truth is, God knows everything. God is omniscient. This is a basic theological claim that we make as Christ's followers. God knows what's going on with this other person. God knows that this person has cancer. God knows that this person has bad finances. God knows that this person is depressed or down. And God loves that person to the max. So therefore, God wants the best for that person. Instead, something happens to us in the process of praying for that person. We find that our hearts are filled with love for that person. Maybe more love than we ever had before. We begin to see that person as a child of God, as an individual of worth and value, somebody with hopes and dreams and wishes and desires, just like we have hopes and dreams and wishes and desires, somebody uniquely made and created by God, just like we have been uniquely made and created by God. In other words, in the process of praying for that person, we begin to recognize that person's humanity. And we're connected to them on a deep level even if that person is somebody who has hurt us or wronged us, done harm to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe you recognize that name. He was a German theologian, lived back in the 1900s. He actually wrote about this point in his book, Life Together. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. We got this quote up here on the screen. He says, a Christian fellowship, in other words, Christian community, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother or sister for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he or she causes me. His or her faith that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother or sister for whom Jesus Christ died, the faith of a forgiven sinner. This is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. I think that's why Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount to pray for our enemies. Jesus knew that we defeat our enemies not by stooping to their level, not by hating them, not by getting even with them. It's that we defeat our enemies by loving them. Prayer activates that love. One of the most remarkable women from the 20th century, in my opinion, in addition to Mother Teresa, one of the most remarkable women from the 20th century was Corrie Timboom. How many of you have ever heard of Corrie Timboom? Corrie Timboom was a Dutch woman. She lived in Holland in the 1930s with her family, uh, with her father and her sister. She was in Holland when Adolf Hitler and the Nazis came to power. In fact, when the Nazis invaded Holland and began to take Jewish people and ship Jewish people off to concentration camps, the Timboom family knew that they couldn't just look the other way, turn a blind eye and do nothing about it. Their Christian faith compelled them to act. So they became part of this underground movement that resisted Hitler and the Nazis, and they actually began to invite Jewish people into their home and to hide them there. Well, eventually the Nazis found out what they were doing, and they were arrested, and they were put inside a concentration camp. They were put inside the worst concentration camp of them all, Auschwitz. Corey's family perished, her father, her sister. She was the only one who survived, I believe. 
Well, sometime later, Corey wrote a book about her family story called The Hiding Place. And if you're interested, you can find this book on Amazon.com. It's still in print today. I'm sure bookstores sell it. It's a very powerful book. Well, one time she was on a speaking tour to promote this book, and this guy came up to her afterwards. And immediately she recognized this man. He was one of the Nazi soldiers at Auschwitz. And she began to recall all the horrific, unspeakable things that took place there. And the man identified himself. He said, you know, Miss Timbo, I was actually one of the guards at Auschwitz. And she said, yes, I know you. I remember you. I remember all those things that you did. And he began to cry, and he begged her, and he pleaded with her, please, please, forgive me. Forgive me. And she thought to herself, this is a Nazi. I could never forgive this guy. And then she felt the Holy Spirit whisper into her heart, pray for him. She prayed for him. And then after she said amen, she said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you. Corey was able to forgive this guy. Now, to be clear, it didn't excuse what this man had done. What this man had done was evil and monstrous, and there are repercussions for our actions. But by praying for him, she was able to love him enough to forgive him, to recognize his humanity. Prayer influences us personally. Prayer influences our connection to others. And then finally, number three, prayer influences our connection to God. Actually, as we pointed out the first week of the series, prayer is our connection to God. Prayer is the meeting point between God and human beings. And folks, this is what God has wanted all along. From the very beginning of this universe, when God said, let there be light, God has wanted all along to connect with us, to connect with you, to connect with me. And not to connect with us in a way that's shallow or superficial, to connect with us in a way that is deep and real and profound and moving. So God invites us in prayer to come just as we are. Remember that old hymn, just as we are. To drop all the sham, all the pretense, all these preconceived notions of how we think we should be in prayer and to just be ourselves. To be our real selves, our true selves, nothing more, nothing less, the very people God already knows us to be inside and out. And his teaching about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't think that you'll be heard because of your many words. God already knows what's on your heart. Well, folks, if God already knows what's on our heart, it's okay to be ourselves when we pray. Don't try to be anybody but you. And along this line, don't get too caught up and the techniques of prayer. Are my hands folded? Are my hands not folded? Are my eyes closed? Are my eyes not closed? Are my knees bent? Are my knees not bent? Don't get too caught up in the techniques. Just do what comes naturally. Just cry out to God. I love this quote by uh, Roberta Bondi, who's a retired seminary professor. She said, if you are praying, you are already doing it right. If you are praying, you are already doing it right. Because by engaging in prayer, what you're essentially doing by the grace of God in a very mysterious way is you're bridging your world with God's world. You're making a connection to the very one who has made you for himself. One of the most well-known works of art in the Western world is the Sistine Chapel. Who painted the Sistine Chapel? Michelangelo did. Uh, the Pope actually commissioned Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel uh, back in the 1500s. It took him four years. He painted it from 1508 to 1512. And undoubtedly, the image that we often think of when we think of the Sistine Chapel is this image up here, the creation of Adam by God. 
Maybe some of you have seen this in person if you've ever had the privilege of going there yourself or you've certainly seen this somewhere, uh, maybe in a book or on the internet. Now, there's something about this image that we often miss. Even though we've seen this a bunch of times, there's something about this image that we often miss. If we notice, and this is on the next slide, there's a small gap in between Adam's finger and God's finger. It's not a big gap, it's not a huge gap, but nevertheless, it's a gap. And actually, this gap isn't because of God. God's finger is the one that is fully extended toward Adam. Instead, Adam's finger is the one that's bent down. What's going on here? Well, there are different theories about why this is, why Michelangelo chose to do this. But to me, Michelangelo was making a theological point. What Michelangelo was telling us is that God doesn't forcefully grab our hand. God doesn't coerce us or manipulate us into a relationship with himself. Instead, out of love, God gives us freedom. God gives us free will. God fully extends himself toward us. God fully offers himself toward us. And then by grace, God invites us to offer ourselves toward God. That's prayer in a nutshell. We talked about prayer these past five weeks. That's prayer in a nutshell. Prayer is lifting that finger. Making that connection. Extending ourselves, offering ourselves to God. So folks, by the good grace of our Lord, lift that finger. Make that connection. Cry out to God. Call out to God. He is ready to hear. He is ready to listen. He is ready to respond. God is ready to commune. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.